Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us here at B'nai My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. And from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week through the Internet with this broadcast where we can set apart the Sabbath and we can worship the Lord together and we can hear from the Word of the Lord the weekly Torah portion. Uh, right now it's June 7th and uh, very exciting times right now. We are completing and or we're beginning the 49th day of the counting of the Omer, completing the seventh week. And uh, this Sunday will be Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks or sometimes called Pentecost. And right now currently all of us here at the ministry, we are working uh, in Dallas, Texas to uh, host a conference uh, that is going on right now. If you happen to be in the North Dallas uh, area and you haven't heard any of the announcements uh, that have been going out for the last uh, couple of months, uh, you can still come and see us. We're at the Wyndham Dallas Suites at Park Central. We're there right now. And you can come and register at the door and come say hi. Uh, and you can also go to ShavuotEvent.com for any of the details there. Um, but uh, for anyone who is at that conference, we're hoping everybody's having a wonderful time there. Um, obviously, this uh, recording here that we're doing is to minister to all the people that are not there this week. And so we thank you for uh, continuing to enjoy this broadcast and to hear from the word of the Lord. A couple of other announcements we have uh, coming from the ministry right now. Uh, we still have registration open, of course, for the Feast of Tabernacles uh, Sukkot that we celebrate in Chandler, Oklahoma. You can go to tabernaclesevent.com, see all the information there. And so we hope that you will register your family to join us for that appointed time where we have amazing teachings, evening programs, teaching workshops, dance workshops, kids programs, youth programs, toddler care, uh, an amazing time for the whole, fun for the whole family uh, to enjoy that holiday and that event. Once again, thank you for inviting us into your home for this broadcast. Now let us set apart this weekly Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Fancy 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafin Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. (laughs) Husbands, let's bless our wives. (coughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha, ba'elim Adonai. Micha mocha, nedahar b'chodesh. Nohorat echilot, Oh, Lord, am I?
among the gods. Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othi le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadunai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom ha'shavi shavat v'yinafash. All together, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha. Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechim ezavcha hayom alevavcha. Vashinan tam lavanecha, v'depardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakbika, u'v'kumika. Ukeshatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu latotavolt b'inenecha, u'chetavtam ha'mazuzot b'techa, u'vishirecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Oh, 
Please turn your Bibles to the book of Numbers, to chapter 1, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mekol ha'amim, benetan lanu et torato, baruch Adonai nonten ha-torah amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, which comes from the first verse of the book of Numbers and is also the biblical name for the Hebrew name for this book of the Bible. It is called Bamidbar which means in the wilderness. Now, as we go into a new book here in our Torah cycle, obviously I always like to give a little bit of a primer toward what we're going to see here in this book, how it compares to perhaps to other passages and Torah portions that we've studied in the past couple of weeks. And I always love some of the amazing themes of the books of the Torah, like to understand there's a there's an overarching theme of what we're going to experience as we go through the stories and the scriptures. And there'll be as you read, there's sometimes where there will be more commandments, more things that just are the Lord spoke to Moses and said, teach the children of Israel these things. Other times there'll be recounting of history, actual historical events that the children of Israel experienced. But overall, there's always a theme of each book of the Bible. Genesis, of course, Bereshit in the beginning, it represents how we got here in the first place, how uh, mankind came to be, how there came to be a relationship between God and man through the story of Abraham, and then also his so the story, beginning the story and the theme of redemption of, through Joseph going in down into Egypt, and that all of those things uh, explain how the children of Israel ended up in Egypt in the first place. In Exodus, we have the story of the children of Israel, of course, being raised up and, and brought out of Egypt with a great and mighty and powerful hand of God. But what the main theme of that book, the Hebrew name Shemot, which means names, is that we learn the very name and the very character of God. It's in that book he reveals his name and that he shows the character of who he is as the creator of heaven and earth and as the God of Israel. 
He is one who loves his people, loves his children. He calls Israel his firstborn. So he rescues them and redeems them out of Egypt. And then he takes them to the mountain where he gives them his covenant and he reveals his his covenant words, his commandments to them. And then the entire last half of the book of Exodus is pretty much about the establishment of his tabernacle and how he desires to dwell in the camp of the children of Israel. And so we learn the very character of God, who he is. Then in Leviticus, what we just completed that book, I have lovingly called it the owner's manual to the human body. It is the commandments that are to us, the people of God, how to be holy as he is holy. And what we are to do, as we now know who God is, we now then are taught what is the expectation of what we as the people of God are supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. So now, as we go into this book in the wilderness, into the book of Numbers, now this is the book that gives us certain examples and scenarios that the children of Israel find themselves in, and then teaches the children of Israel, and kind of teaches us, in turn, who we all actually are. How do we actually react to the scenarios and situations that are presented to us in our lives? Leviticus tells us who we are to be, But Numbers teaches us who we actually are. Because this is what's going to happen. The children of Israel go into the wilderness. They go into this this place, this area with with trials and tribulations and struggles. They're going to go into the wilderness of of the land where there is a lack of food. And they're going to be tested in various things. There's going to be rebellions that come up. And all. And what we get to watch as we read the book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, we see the children of Israel in how they react to various stimuli, to the various things that come against them. Are they going to stand stand strong, stand firm, stand on their, their belief and their trust in God? Or are they going to trust in their own power? Are they going to rebel? Are they going to say, we, it would have been better for us to have died in Egypt than to die here? Well, I kind of broke the spoiler alert. That's what actually happens. The children of Israel do rebel. They do grumble. They question why they even came out into the wilderness. And we see them react poorly, should I say, to the experiences and the tests that God causes them to experience. One of, that's one of the things that we can absolutely take application in our own lives when it comes to being in our own wilderness of sorts. How do we respond when we are told no? When there's something that we want... We have to always know, I mean, there's sometimes there's things that we want, and then sometimes that doesn't get given to us, whether it be the, our boss or the Lord testing us and saying, like, you know, I want, I want a whole lot of money. Well, I pray to the Lord, Lord, uh, help me to win the lottery. And the Lord says, no, I'm not going to give you all that money. Well, am I going to be, well, how dare you, Lord? Am I going to say that? No, of course not. But that's a basic example. That's, that's kind of a, an easy one to, to understand. When it comes to the promises that God has given and promised to us, sometimes we think we should have received them sooner rather than when the Lord is ready to give them to us. That's another kind of way of God telling, no, it's not your time yet. No, we're not going to go to the promised land yet. You or no, because you made that mistake there. I'm now going to keep you in the wilderness for a number of years. All of those sort of situations are uh, different ways that the Lord is testing his people 
And then what we get to see is how do the people react to that? Because us, we're, we have uh, the hindsight that we get to uh, see. We got the cheat sheet here where we see what the children of Israel did and how they reacted. How are we going to react to the same situations? How are we going to react when the Lord doesn't fulfill his promise in the time we think that he should? Are we going to rebel? Or are we going to continue to trust in God like some of the heroes of our scripture that continue to stay firm in their following, in their belief of God? When, when, when a bad report comes, such as when the, the spies will go into the land and a bad report comes back, how do you react to that? We all find ourselves in various in a various type of wilderness in our lives. Um, when it comes to these trials and, and uh, scenarios that we find ourselves in that are difficult, what comes out of those scenarios truly is a stronger character because we have gone through the adversity. Um, you might have heard the story or might have had these own experiences in your own lives that if you have your family and you take a family and you go out camping, and when you go out camping, um, you know, sometimes there's, you're, you're kind of subject to the elements and there's some bad things that can happen. And so you can, might have a family camping trip. And once you get out there, um, you know, the wind is blowing. So you're trying to put the tent up and it's extremely difficult to put the tent up because the wind is blowing. And so maybe, so, so just people are, are yelling and screaming, grab that pole, go grab that. We, we, you know, we need to stake this in the ground. So once you finally get the tent up, well, then you're trying to get the campfire started and you can't get the campfire started and you can't cook any food until the campfire gets started. And so then it starts to rain. So of course you can't cook any food when you start a fire when it's raining. And so you're huddled up with your family with a flashlight trying to have some sort of fun this whole idea was supposed to be fun it was supposed to be a good idea to go out camping with the family but then you have all these struggles and issues and when the when the camping trip finally gets over with and you're like man what the father might be like man that was absolutely miserable what do you, the kids and the family say about that camping trip? They, they tell those stories for years to come about, oh man, do you remember that time when dad, you know, couldn't get the campfire started and we had to get huddled up? It's like, oh, that was hilarious or that was great or it was, it was this thing and it becomes this story that almost, uh, galvanizes the family. It almost brought them together. It brought them together closer because of the issues and the trials and the struggles that they experienced. God, this is the human condition, and God understands the human condition. He created it to where when we face this adversity, what it actually creates is camaraderie. You can say the same thing about your uh, anybody who's been in the military. They got their military buddies. They got the war stories that they faced, and the adversity actually brings them closer together. It kind of chips away at any of the extra uh, rust on the edges and, and, and things and baggage that you might uh, uh, carry with you. Because when you actually get into a, an area or a situation where you're really struggling, it's, you know, all the little insignificant things suddenly don't matter. You start to learn and understand the things that do matter. So by the time you come out of it, you've kind of knocked away all the, all the forge scale and suddenly you've been forged into a stronger, more useful tool or a vessel that can be used by God. This is why God had the children of Israel go through the wilderness. This is why the God of Israel didn't have them go the way of the Philistines. It's because he was going to take them into the wilderness and he was going to mold them and shape them. And he was going to be a refining fire that refined and, and, and burned off all the dross. And what was left was then the pure, holy people 
that God desired to be with and to have covenant with. That's the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness. That's the reason why they went through the the wilderness. That's the reason why there was a whole generation that didn't make it. But there was another generation that came up that did kind of get this message, that did understand the, the, the refinement that God was doing while the children of Israel were in the wilderness. So this is the theme. This is the theme of the book of God testing his people, seeing who they truly are. We have the instruction of how they're supposed to act. Leviticus covered that for us. Now we get to see how they actually what they actually do when that experience comes. One other little nugget I want to throw in there too, uh, Bamidbar in the wilderness. Midbar means uh, wilderness. The One of the root words of that is Dabar, which actually is in the Hebrew is words. It's the root word of Devarim, which is the last book of the Bible, uh, Deuteronomy, which means words. And so there's one other extra little sort of nugget and, and sort of a spiritual concept that you can draw out from this idea of being in the wilderness. Here in our modern times, not all of us, uh, we have so many, you know, first world luxuries of, of electricity and air conditioning and things that whenever you say going and being in the wilderness, I mean, even if we go on that hypothetical family camping trip, we've got all the luxuries still in the world from instant fire starters to, uh, you know, modern tents that, that can stand up to 60 mile an hour winds. You might take yourself an RV and it's about the, it's about the most luxurious thing you could have possibly lived in. It's more luxurious than anything anybody lived in 50 years ago. So this idea of us going through the wilderness here in modern times is, is really is a foreign concept. What we instead find ourselves in, especially in this day and age, we live in the information age, what we find ourselves in is a wilderness of information, especially with the onset of the Internet. You can have information being flying at you from any which way. You can find some reputable source telling you something is really bad, and you can find another reputable source telling you that this certain something is good. So what in the world are we supposed to do when we have this all of this information coming at us from every which way it's it's a trial and tribulation in and of itself not like you know trudging through a a a mossy wilderness i mean it kind of is but it's not like we physically have to do that but we mentally and spiritually have to do have to go through that sort of thing and so what we find ourselves in modern times i like to call a wilderness of words a wilderness of information that is that is constantly that we have to that we have to hack and slash through and try to find the truth sometimes and that's the things that we have to face and so that's the different kind of wilderness that we struggle with here in modern times and i love the fact that in that he, even in that hebrew word bamidbar there is down to the root of it the idea that even words can be a wilderness in and of themselves that should kind of let us know and that 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 encourages me to know this passage is still applicable today and i believe that there is the lord is still trying to speak to us and encourage us even through these words of ancient times so with that as a primer for bamidbar the book of numbers our tour portion for this week uh, extends through numbers chapter 4 all the way to verse 20 and there's lots of different details and information that co- that comes in here some of it seems fairly redundant and so it's Sometimes hard to draw out special individual notes and nuggets from the Torah portion itself. Just an overview, basically, what's going to happen is that this, it, it is called the book of numbers in the English. For the reason of, this book does contain a lot of numbers. In fact, this first chapter, what's going to happen is they're going to take a census of the children of Israel. 
They're going to count up the people who are in of the Israelites. They're going to count up and divide them by each tribe. And they're going to give us a number based on how many people were in each tribe, counting them up. Only to then uh, sum up all of them to see every single, the number of men that were over the age of 20 that were able to go to war when it's all said and done, when they count it up, is 603,550. Men able to go to war. They've taken the census. That number corresponds exactly with the amount of silver that was donated to the creation of the tabernacle where they were commanded to take a census by giving a half shekel for every man over the age of 20. And that that half shekel then was counted up. And so they then they figured out how many shekels they had. Divide that by two. That's how many men we have. That number is exactly the same. Now, some people might speculate that that number, that those two numbers are exactly the same because the census was done at the same time. We don't know if some of these books of the scripture were written at the same time or different times written by Moses or with the aid of other uh, Israelites who helped Moses to compile this information. So we don't really know. There's also, there is one thing that's fascinating is that when they do this number count, it does not include the tribe of, of the Levites. Because the Levites are going to be counted completely separate from the rest of the children of Israel. They've been set apart in a different way. And so then in the count of the silver that was given to the tabernacle, we don't know if the Levites were counted in that. We don't know if it was actually two different censuses. So, there might be a miracle in the fact that those numbers are the same, even though they were two different, uh, a different census each time that it was counted and actually included different people. We don't really know. Critics of this passage of scripture do take issue with all of the numbers as well. Some people believe the numbers might be inflated or rounded perhaps because every single number that is given for the number of people that are in each tribe, every single number ends in a zero. There's no odd number that's given. It never says that there is, you know, there was 186,507. It doesn't say that. Every single one ends on a zero. So some people say it's all like, there's no way that there was always an even number divisible by 10 that of every number that was in this tribe. So surely it had to have been rounded up or rounded down for one reason or another. However, just because something is is seems impo- highly improbable doesn't mean that it's impossible. So when God says, and when the when the counting says here, it says it actually several times because there's almost like two different ways that it's counted up, in both in chapter one and chapter two, that when it says there were six hundred three thousand five hundred fifty men of Israel that were able to go to war, I can trust the scripture and say God can work a miracle and say that is the exact number that was there. Just because it's highly improbable doesn't mean it's impossible. So I don't really let those arguments say, well, because the numbers don't look right or or that doesn't mean that it's not true. So that don't let that hang you up in the process of looking at these numbers and how the children of Israel were counted up. It is something that for us to think about when the children of Israel are taking the census. Why are they taking the census? Why do they why do they need to know the number? Does God need to know the number of the children of Israel? Of course he doesn't, because we say God knows the number of hairs on our head. God knew how many men were there. God knew well and good how many people were coming out of Egypt because of who were his people. So this count is not necessarily for God to know, even though God is commanding it. What it is doing is it's telling the children of Israel, it's giving them a little bit of information. One, 
it's telling them that this is the strength of the army. If we're going to go into a place where there is uh, an, another, um, an enemy, an enemy force, we know how strong our army is. If we were to rally every man that can carry a sword, that can go to war, we know how strong our army is and we know whether we can win a battle or we can, we're going to lose a battle depending on who we're facing. Good piece of knowledge to have, good recon to have. That's absolutely a, a good reason to know this number. Um, another thing, too, is this, is that this is also showing the children of Israel the promise of God to prosper them even in the land of Egypt. That they have grown into an incredible company of people, that they have, he has multiplied the children of Israel. Now, the other thing, too, to always remember about this is these were not just naturally born children of Israel. One of the arguments that some people might say is there's no way in that number of generations chronologically in Egypt that they ever could have had that much offspring to have that many people in Israel that were naturally born citizens. Okay, if you, if you say that, fair enough. Remember, this was a mixed multitude. It said that back in Exodus. This was all the slaves of Egypt that were freed. Anyone who confessed a belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at that time when he's pouring out wrath and judgments upon Egypt, they came and they joined with Israel and they pledged their allegiance to the God of Israel. There was plenty of Egyptians that were here in this mixed multitude as well. There was Ethiopians. There was, there was all kinds of people, whoever had been enslaved, whoever had sold themselves to Pharaoh, going all the way back to the Great Famine, and were in the possession of Egypt. Any of those people, if they confessed their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were a part of this group. And they were adopted into the tribes and they were counted among these people. So this whole idea where the, 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 any idea that comes uh, that, that God is sort of elitist or that there's ever a group of people that uh, might call themselves to be God, that they're the people of God, but others are not or not included or and it's based on one's heritage and that you have to be of blood of a certain uh, of, of Jews to be the people of God. That entire concept is a modern concept and a racist one at that because that is not how God ever worked in the past. And that is not what this group of the children of Israel looked like at all. Believe you me, every people that were a part of the tribe, they all looked different. They all looked different. They all looked unique. There, like I said, there were some Egyptians. There was Canaanites. There was there was Ethiopians. There was all manner of of tongue and and face and look and skin color. And so anybody and and this is the whole thing where racism just gets out of control when it's based on skin color of all things. Where this isn't what the children of Israel looked like. This isn't at all what the children, I mean, they were, they were black, they were, they were lighter skinned people. They might have had any manner of physical look to them because it was all a matter of who of the world had had to sell themselves to the Egyptians during the Great Famine. This was all peoples, all tongues, all races that were all one mixed multitude called Israel, called the children of Israel because they were adopted in and because they had confessed their belief in the God of Israel the creator of heaven and earth. They all knew that story by this point in time. So any idea or thought or concept that God uh, is particular to one particular race, it just doesn't hold water according to this 
according to the biblical narrative. They were all mixed in into all of the different tribes. I imagine there were actually some tribes that probably were more predominantly one race or the other that didn't make them any less as far as a part of the kingdom of Israel. There might have been more Egyptians that gravitated toward the tribe of Ephraim because it was Ephraim that grew up in Egypt, one of the sons of Joseph. And so Ephraim and Manasseh might have had more Egyptians in it. And perhaps there in Judah, there was more naturally born that came from Canaan, from the loins of Jacob in that tribe. I don't know. I'm speculating on all these things. But what the thing we have to understand is, is that they're all a part of Israel. This obviously connects to much greater prophecies, of course, prophecies of the who is the house of Israel. When they go into the land and when they're scattered into the nations and, and, and the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, primarily led by Ephraim and Manasseh, was scattered into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom and Judah scattered into Babylonian captivity. Then they come back, then scattered again into Roman captivity. And this whole idea of who are the sons of Israel, who are the descendants of the ancients, there's absolutely the precedent. It could be anyone. Anyone of the world, anyone scattered into the nations, they are of Israel. This whole idea speaks to something much greater into the future. There's amazing parallels to Ezekiel. I already kind of was mentioning Ezekiel uh, chapter 37, where you have the reunification of the whole house of Israel, where you have the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah coming together. And this is a prophecy of the reunification of the whole house of Israel that, you know, where we might have two tribes on either side of the tabernacle that maybe don't get along with each other perfectly. That doesn't make them not a part of Israel. And we're looking for the great reunification of all, all of Israel. There's another amazing parallel and passage that I'd like to read whenever I'm teaching this portion. And that's from Ezekiel chapter 20. This is the, um, this is a passage that they're, they're the themes of it and talking about counting the children of Israel and counting those who are there at the end, obviously you, you can see exactly how this ties into Bamidbar in the wilderness where we're beginning a book of the Bible and we're beginning by talking about a census of counting the children of Israel. Let me go to Ezekiel 20. Let me begin at verse 33. I always like reading you know, the bulk of a passage rather than just a single verse or something like that because the themes are always amazing to, to bring all that connective nature of the scripture to life so let me begin at reading ezekiel uh, chapter 20 verse 33 as i live says the lord surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with fury poured out i will rule over you and i will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with fury poured out and i will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there i will plead my case with you face to face just as i pleaded my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I plead my case with you, says the Lord God. What an amazing prophetic word speaking into a future generation where he's going to pull us out of the nations where we've been scattered. He's going to bring us into the wilderness of the peoples and it is there that we will meet him. It is there that we will, we will plead, he will plead his case to us to believe in him, to be in covenant with him, just as he did with the children of Israel. This, uh, the, the, the parallel is uncanny to the idea that as just as he pulled the children of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand, outstretched arm, with fury poured out, he'll do the same to a future generation. And he'll bring us into this curious thing called the wilderness of the peoples. 
And so there we, in the future, will find ourselves in some manner of wilderness at some point in time. And it will be similar to the wilderness the children of Israel found themselves in. Verse 37, I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge the rebels from among you. And those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know I am the Lord. Hmm. Interesting. This is now the part of the prophecy that after being in the wilderness, he's then going to cause us to pass under the rod, which if you remember from last week's portion at the very end of the book of Leviticus, the idea of passing under the rod was a means of counting the sheep, counting the flock, counting who belonged to God. That's what the children of Israel are doing at the beginning of the book of Numbers. They're counting themselves. They're counting themselves among the families of God so that then we might know who belongs to God. This is the same pattern. I mean, from the end of the book of Leviticus right into the book of Numbers, there's a spiritual pattern of God is counting what belongs to him. That's what it means to pass under the rod. And he says this, that he says, when they're in the wilderness, I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. Well, Spoiler alert, the rest of the book of Numbers, there's going to be lots of rebels among the children of Israel, and they will most definitely be purged from the family of Israel and from the tribes. They will fall by the sword. They will fall by the power of God, by the the manifestation of God. He'll cause people to die in the blink of an eye because of rebellion. And believe you me, God, in in the case of the children of Israel being in the wilderness, purged the rebels from among them. Such will happen to us in whatever this wilderness we find ourselves in sometime in the future, or maybe we find ourselves in it now. I'm not going into a deeper prophetic uh, study of eschatology and things right now. I'm simply taking the pattern and saying this. When we find ourselves in the future, in some future wilderness, will we be affected by the atmosphere around us And will we transgress against God? Will we rebel against what God has done? The fact that we find ourselves in this wilderness, that God picks us up, brings us and takes us and plants us somewhere else. And maybe we don't like being transplanted someplace else. We wish we were someplace else. Are we going to find peace? And are we going to find blessing in the exile that God has planted us in and still put our trust in him? Or will we rebel against the God that moved us there? And will we transgress against his law? If we do... God will purge us from being a part of his people and from being a part of his covenant. That is what we are. That's that's why we're put in the wilderness. The Lord wants to see who you are. He wants to see what you're going to be. And when you when a little bit of hardship comes your way, are you still going to believe in him? Still going to trust in him? Because if you don't, he'll purge you. He'll cut you off from among your people. And then there, maybe there will be another path by which you can come back into the good graces of God. But as far as we can tell, in the wilderness, people fell by the wayside. People, some people didn't make it when they traveled through the wilderness. Such will be the case in any future wilderness that we face, be it the great tribulation, great Jacob's trouble, the time before the Lord returns, that will be, there will be a purging of sorts that will take place because the ones that will be left will be the ones who chose to believe in God through every hardship, every trial and tribulation. That is the people he wants to come into his promised land. So what an amazing theme this is, of course. 
talking about in the wilderness, talking about counting and numbering the people who belongs to God. And it obviously is a parallel, of course, to future times and the end of days. Now, something else I want to talk about, let me cover this really quick, when we're talking about just simply counting things up. Why we need to number certain things. So I like to bring out just a couple of these different nuggets so that we remember that sometimes it's good to number something or to know what God has done and, and, and counting our blessings, so to speak. But there's other times in which counting can be bad and that we need to make sure that we're doing it because it glorifies God, not because it glorifies us and our egos. When counting is good, one, when God commands you to count something, commands you to understand the number of something that you have. In the case of the children of Israel, they were able to know who was able to go to war. This is a good thing to count and to know. It's also another thing that's very important when it comes to organization. Every person in Israel was counted. They had a name. It wasn't just this mass group of people that somebody felt like they weren't a part of something. No, when you're actually counted, and it's like each, I mean, when, when that shekel was collected from you, and I'm sure, uh, I don't know if there, there ever was a manuscript that collected it, but someone probably somewhere wrote down every name, every name of every person. We have some of them recorded in our scripture, of course, from the Chronicles and, 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 and what... Uh, you know, who was the son of who was the son of who, but there's many more names of people that we don't know, but that didn't mean that those people weren't counted as the family of God. It's always good to have great organization, and that's one of the compliments that whenever we as a ministry try to go out and do one of our events, we give name tags to every single person. We make sure that when they register, we have them well taken care of. They have a campsite that they're assigned to at the Feast of Tabernacles so they know where they're supposed to be. And we know if we need to find that person, we know exactly where they are. We know their name. We know the size of their RV. We know what campsite they're in. We know whether they have any children in the children's program. And they are a name and a person and not just some number to inflate our registration numbers. They're a person. They're counted and, and it, it makes them, it, it encourages somebody. It makes them feel good, like they're a part of something. That is absolutely a time in which counting can be good. We do the same at Camp Yeshua with every kid that comes in, that they're not just some, you know, number that we can inflate and, and we can advertise later and say how big our event is. No, they're, each person is special and important in their own right, and they're counted that way. And so this is a, the time in which counting that can, can be good. So that each man can be can be blessed and, and, and encouraged, knowing that they're that they are that that they have a value to them. So that's when counting is good. There's another thing when it comes to numbers and counting that is called gematria, where we use uh, the various meaning of numbers or mean, uh, certain letters of the Hebrew by uh, Hebrew language that are correspond with certain numbers. And when we do this and we can count it up and we can count up that a single Hebrew word can have a certain number value. Now, before I go any bit further, the second I said gematria, there's probably somebody that heard me say that. And they probably were like, oh, oh I don't know if I want to listen to this anymore. Anybody that uses gematria, that that's a that's a Kabbalistic idea. That's a that, that's some sort of uh, spiritual thing. And, and it, let me just sort of lay the whole argument out here and and 
let's I'll lay all my cards out and we'll be 100% honest about the subject. Gematria is something that's extremely fascinating. It creates patterns and parallels from one certain Hebrew words to other Hebrew words or certain passages of scripture to other passages of scripture. Sometimes it can ex- be used to explain why a certain number is given to us in scripture. Maybe one of the most obvious examples of this is when the Messiah um, called to the disciples and he says, cast your nets in. And when they caught the, and they said, pull your nets back in and they caught exactly 153 fish, not 152, not 154, 153. What is the significance of 153? Well, anybody that's done a little bit of gematria doesn't take much to know, well, there's also sometimes spiritual phrases that connect to that. And there's actually several ones. One of the biggest ones is there's a phrase called sons of the living God. And that is that number of that phrase equals 153. And so it connects to the disciples that then what uh, the Messiah is going to turn his disciples into is to fishers of men and that he is calling them sons of the living God. And so there's this beautiful parallel to when you just see a number, you're kind of encouraged by other deeper meanings, and it proves God is much smarter than we are. That's kind of a simple example. Gematria should never be used to try and divine or to tell some tell the future in some sort of way. That is where the all of these ideas and things and concepts that God creates can be used in an inappropriate way. And Gematria most definitely has been used that way. It has been used by Kabbalists. It has been overemphasized by Kabbalists. And so I don't subscribe to Kabbalah in any way. But I do find the concept of Gematria extremely fascinating and that it's something if God has created these parallels from from other passages of Scripture and certain Hebrew words to have certain meanings, then I like to find those things to prove and, and God is glorified in all of that information. Does it Does my entire faith in God hinge on whether a number means a certain thing? Of course it doesn't. But it builds up sometimes coincidences, build confidence in God. And that's what I love to find when it comes to counting up the meanings of numbers and, and, and the value of different Hebrew letters. And sometimes the paleo meanings of certain Hebrew letters. None of that is a salvation issue. None of that. No faith should ever be hinged on any of those sort of things. But they can be used to build up confidence in God. And that is when gematria and numbers can be encouraging and can be a good thing. But with any good thing, it, too much of it can become a bad thing. And so if you, if you know of a teacher that dabbles way heavily in that kind of thing, and maybe your spirit inside of you says, I don't know if I trust that or believe that, listen to that spirit. I encourage you to listen to that spirit because my spirit triggers on the same things as well. Even though I have, at times, in the course of teaching, I've mentioned the word gematria a time or two. So that's just sort of my overall uh, message on that. So when counting can be bad, well, gematria can be bad if used inappropriately as well. Counting can also be bad when it's out of jealousy or envy. How many times have you ever lived in a city where there's maybe two congregations or two churches and so one of the things you might the conversation that might be had is like, oh, well, let's go count up the number of people at that church over there. And, and because I bet our church is bigger. So you send some spies over there, some some service or whatever, and you count them up and and you're like, ha ha, we are bigger. And so uh, what a wonderful thing. Our, our church is bigger than that one or our congregation. It's not just Christianity. Messianics have uh, fallen into the same trap as well. And you might think that you're little bit more special because you might have a larger group 
then maybe another group. Well, the thing is, is God does not favor a, a minority or a majority. He favors what is right. He favors what is anointed of God. And so if any of us ever think in our own heart and in our own mind that we might go count to see how great and mighty God has made us or how great and mighty somebody else is, that is a folly and that is a mistake and a sin that we could fall into. David fell into this exact same mistake as well. In 2 Samuel 24, David thought that he wanted to do a, a numbering census and he wanted to count up the kingdom of Israel versus the kingdom of Judah. And because he thought the kingdom of Judah was something bigger, mightier, and, and was going to be a whole lot better. And when it's all said and done, the numbers came out. And guess what? There was more in the kingdom of Israel than there were in the kingdom of Judah. And David was sorely disappointed in that, and he had to repent of his sin and the mistake that he made by thinking that he was going to count the numbers and that that was going to mean something special for him. It was something he ended up having to repent for. So that is a time in which counting can be bad. So we need to avoid those things. Now, there's modern philosophical phrases such as, you know, don't count your chickens before they hatch. Uh, don't, you know, count your money and somehow think that you're some great, mighty, noble person because you have a great amount of money. And then don't count yourself too high than what truly the Lord has put you in a position. And don't, don't try to oversell yourself in any sort of situation. These are philosophical, uh, tips to make sure that you don't get a big head about yourself when you think that, uh, you know, a certain number says something about you. So that's something that, uh, I, I like to point out little nuggets when counting is good and when counting is bad. Now, here's something that I want to share with you uh, that I've never shared before in the course of teaching in the Torah cycle. And I, some, as I've taught this portion before, I've gone now, this is now my third full year of teaching the Torah on a, on a regular weekly basis. And every time that I see a, a list of names or a list of numbers. I have, I've said many times over, I, have, I believe it with all my heart that there is a special meaning to each of those things. There is, there is no idle word in scripture. There's no idle number in scripture. There's no idle name in scripture that when you go into the meanings of those names or if you find other numbers that connect a certain passage of scripture to another passage of scripture, that then you, you just find sometimes amazing parallels in Scripture, and it just continues to prove the power and the glory of God in what He is able to do. The best example of this is Numbers chapter 33, which is my birth portion when I went in, and the 42 journeys of the wilderness that are listed in Numbers chapter 33 is a great encouragement, and there is a huge teaching and a prophecy associated with the names of those locations. And there's a prophecy of, of what the children of Israel will experience at the end times. And there is also an amazing parallel to the li spiritual life of a believer as they go and they go through their life becoming a believer all the way until final judgment. There's a pattern and a parallel to the meaning of every name of every place that is listed in Numbers chapter 33. When we get there in this Torah cycle, I might take the full hour of our Torah teaching to maybe focus on that. So... That's something exciting to, to look forward to. <clears throat> Excuse me. What I have now studied and what I've now brought out, something very exciting that's new that I had never done before, is looking at, we're still in Numbers chapter 1, is the listing of the names of the captains of the tribes. 
Beginning at verse 5 in Numbers chapter 1, it lists the tribe. It lists a man that is called by God. God himself has said by name, these are to be the captains of these tribes. And it gives the tribe, it gives the name of the captain, and it gives the name of the captain's uh, father, who he was a son of. And so you might read this, and you read this really quickly going on through, and it's like um, here, verse 5, these are the names of the men who shall stand with you. From Reuben, uh, Elizur, the son of Shadur, from, and then from Simeon, it's uh, Shalumiel, and son of uh, Zerush Shaddai. And it continues on, and it says, it gives this listing of, these, of all 12 tribes, of all 12 captains, and all 12 fathers of those captains. We might glance over those words and we'd be like, all right, we're just, you know, the Lord's just sort of saying this is who they are. I've always loved this passage because I can find my full name in it because my name is Ephraim, Nashan, Judah. Ephraim and Judah, of course, being tribes of Israel. Nashan was the leader of the tribe of Judah going into the wilderness. So my full name appears here. So I always love flipping to Numbers chapter one and put a little smile on my face, even from when I was little. However... If I truly believe what I've said when I said there's no idle name in Scripture, do you think it's possible there is a deeper meaning in these names, in the names of these people? Well, um, in, in my short time this week, I was able to go through and I just did I just did a quick study. Nothing, nothing too in depth, nothing too uh, deep. Where you, I mean, I bet you could go into the Hebrew letters that make up those names. You could go into some gematria values of what those names mean, uh, in, in number wise, and find parallels to other parts of scripture. I just, I'll be a hundred percent honest. I just did a quick search. Quick search, uh, just look at the Strong's uh, Concordance Blue Letter Bible, which just tells you this is what the meaning of this name is in the Hebrew. Now, I know that's not the, the most accurate or the best concordance. I know that's not, the, the, like I said, th- this, is a, this is a surface level study. But what I was able to find in my short time of looking it up was nothing short of astonishing. Just looking at the meanings of these names. And putting them side by side. And I have a listing here of of what these names and these meanings are. And I did this again. I think I did this last year also with the meaning of the names of the spies that went into the wilderness. That was a listing of names of people that the men chose who to go in and spy out the land. And if I remember correctly, some of the meanings of those names were not very positive. They weren't good. These men that were chosen by the people to go and spy out the land, they didn't really have the best name in the first place when it came to the meaning of that name. So the fact that a bad report comes back from a man uh, that mean, the name, his name means judgment, uh, maybe that's why he came back with a bad report. You know what I mean? Here we have a listing of 12 men that were called by God. God gave these men, called them by name and said, these are my leaders. Now let us go through and let's look at some of the meanings of these and the amazing parallels that can come from some of these names. Of the tribe of Reuben, the, the, the captain was Elizur. The meaning of his name is, my God is a rock. Man, what a, what a strong name that is. I mean, if you're looking at any, any messianics out there, you've you got a child in the womb, that, that's not a bad name, Elizur. You know, it's a little bit different, a little bit unique, but that's what the meaning is. Fantastic. His son is uh, Shadur which means the darter or the cultivator of light. Okay, so when you're saying like that, that might sound a little weird, but man, you know what that takes me back to? That takes me back to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
the creator of heaven and earth, the first thing he created was light, and you better believe that God is my rock, the creator of heaven and earth. This is the first name listed. I'm going in order as it's listed. And it is by, I think, uh, it starts at birth order uh, initially, but then it sort of, it's given in a certain order as well. So I find that fascinating as well. So I'm just going by how it's listed in the scripture. First one, my God is a rock and he's the cultivator of light. He's the creator of heaven and earth. Nice little mini teaching just from the captain and his father's name of the tribe of Reuben. Let's continue on. Of the tribe of Simeon. Um, Shalumiel, which means the friend of God. Also, Shalu, that's all the Hebrew, the, the root word of that is Shalom, and so it can mean peace. Friend of God, the peace of God. He was the son of uh, Zuri Shaddai, which means my rock is almighty. Shaddai means almighty God. Man, I mean, we're two for two as far as two really encouraging, powerful sounding combinations of names here. The friend of God and we, the rock is almighty. You know what I think about there? Just I'm just going off the cuff here. I think about Abraham. Abraham, who was called the friend of God. And he knew God, not as yod but he knew him as El Shaddai, almighty God. And so his rock, his God, was the almighty God, and he was the friend of God. Man, we're two for two. We're just going down the line here of... God pouring out his, his blessing and telling the story of his God and his relationship with his people. Let's go to uh, Judah. The leader is Nachshan, my middle name. Very interesting meaning of Nachshan. It means, actually means like enchanter or diviner. Uh, deeper root words, uh, it, it sounds very similar also to another Hebrew word um, that sounds very much like Nachshan, which means serpent. And it's like, so sometimes it's sort of, serpent-like or secretive or sly, but it means that, uh, an enchanter. Now, when you think about that initially, you're like, okay, that's something we're supposed to stay away from, of course, right? Except we're talking about God here. We're talking about God. We're talking about his power. He has almighty power and authority over spiritual things. He was the father of Aminadab, and he says, my kinsman is noble, is what the meaning of that name is. So the one who is a part of our family, God, he is our heavenly father, He's noble, but he also has the power and he's divine in all things. We are taught that God is divine. And so that's a little nugget that we're still talking about God here. Now we go to the tribe of Issachar. The leader was named Nataniel, which means given of God. And so then his father was Zuar, which actually means littleness or to grow small. Sometimes the gift that God gives to us is what he gives to us is small. What, and when sometimes the, what we are able to give back to him in our worship of him, sometimes it's small. It's whatever we have to give. But if, if he's chosen us and calling us to be his people and what we have to give, he only asks for a tenth of our tithe. We, that was one chapter ago in Leviticus. So when we are given to God, given to God what is ours, sometimes that can be small. Now let's be encouraged again. Let's go to Zebulun. The leader was Eliab, which means my God is father. And he was the son of Helon, which means strength. But my father is strong. The fa- my father is of God, who I believe in, though given to God something might be small, my heavenly father, he is strong and he has strength. Again, encouraging connections. I'm just going on just the just the initial meaning of these names. We can go into a little deeper study, and I'm sure somebody can find another parallel as well. But let me keep going. 
of the tribe of Ephraim. The leader was Elishama. And the meaning of his name is, my God has heard. My God has heard what I, something that maybe I've said. And he was the son of Amihud, Amihud, which means my kinsman is majesty. Okay, so my kinsman, that's my God. He's noble. He's also the rock. He's almighty. But he's also majesty. He's my king. And so even my king hears me when I cry. That's the relationship that we have as his servants. Is that he doesn't just command us to do what he wants us to do and we're just a bunch of his his toys and his playthings. No, he's formed a covenant relationship with us where he is the God who will hear us in the day that we cry out. And he is the king with the power to do something about it when we do cry out. All right, now check out this one. Manasseh. The leader was uh, Gamaliel, which means the reward of God. He was the son of Pedhazur, which means the rock has ransomed or the rock has redeemed. Wow. Now we're starting to get, as, as things have gone on, if we're now talking about the history of Israel, sometimes Israel has cried out to his God, who is king, and we also that we went through the entire time of the kings, and there's all this history of Israel. Now we're now getting to the point where we're saying the reward of God, the rock has redeemed. Now we're talking about Yeshua. Now we're talking about that the reward that God has given to us, the reward of salvation, that Yeshua has paid the price, he's redeemed us, he is the rock of our salvation, and he has redeemed us. I'm starting to now see this the, a historical pattern here now. We began with be the beginning. We then had a little mention of Abraham. Some of these things might all connect to the history of Israel. Now we're talking about what the Messiah has done for us and our reward. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, the leader, was named Abidan, which means my father is judge. And he was the son of Gidoni, which means my hewer or the one who cuts. Fascinating. Okay, so now we're talking about the judgment of God. When God makes a uh, he is our father, and when he judges something, he decides what is cut, what is trimmed. When we sin before the Lord... When we sin a great sin, he chooses who is cut off from among his people. He is the one who hews his people. Now that name also, Gidoni, that should remind you of, uh, sounds phonetically like another hero of our scripture. And that, of course, is Gideon, the judge, whose name means hewer. And what he had to do, or I'm reminded of that story where he was one of the judges, that after a bunch of years of prosperity under the judge Deborah, then the children of Israel fell into a great amount of sin and, and, and they had to be brought back up. Then Gideon had to show up and then he had to come and restore back the people to follow God, to keep the commandments and to purge the wickedness from among the land. This is all in the time of the judges here. And I'm reminded of the story of Gideon and what he had to do to, and he had to hew the people and cut off any of the wickedness that didn't belong any there. And so here in the story of the, the meaning of the, the leader and his father and the, of the tribe of Benjamin, my father is judge and he's the one who hews and cuts and refines us a little bit. I'm reminded of the story of Gideon with that. Only got a couple more left. Dan, the tribe of Dan. The leader was Elchizer. Elchizer, which means my brother is help. That name sounds very similar to Eliezer which means my God is help. So we're talking about the servant. We're talking about the helper. 
And he was the son of Ami Shaddai, which means my kinsman is almighty. Okay, so here we see that Shaddai once again. And we're talking about the almighty God, who we've already established is our kin, and he is a helper to us. What did the Messiah say would come after he had to return to his father? The helper would come. The Holy Spirit would come, and he would be our help. And the Holy Spirit is all from Almighty God. We're telling the story. We're telling the story of the history of time and the history of Israel. Yeshua came. He was our Redeemer. He was, he, 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 he was ransomed. He was our reward. And then those that have rejected him, God has judged, who's cut off from his people. And we've been cut off. We've been scattered into the nations. But what encouraging thing came after that is my brother, who is the help, the Holy Spirit has come from God to lead us and to guide us. So now that we're in the age of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit has come in the absence of the Messiah walking the earth, or we're talking about going back to Abraham. God spoke directly with Abraham. We now live in the time and the age of where the Holy Spirit is among us. So now what comes next? As we've been led and guided by the Holy Spirit, what's supposed to come after that? Well, some of us might say uh, the return of the Lord. Isn't the return of the Lord coming? Yeah, yeah, the return of the Lord's coming. But there's something else that has to happen before the Lord can return. And that is the great and terrible tribulation. That we have to face the time of Jacob's trouble. So in the last three tribes that I have to list, hear this one out. The leader of the tribe of Asher was a man by the name of Pagiel, which means the event of God. And he was the son of uh, Okran. I hope I'm probably saying that wrong. But that means troubled. The event of God that is troubled. The time of Jacob's trouble. The time that Israel will have to be judged. And we are now, we've now gone from creation of the world, talking about Abraham, talking about the Messiah, talking about us being judged, talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to talk about the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. During that time, God's going to do something very special for his people. In the tribe of Gad, the leader was named of Eli, um, Eli Asaf, which means God has added. He was the son of uh, Deuel, which means they know God. The people who know God will be added. God, people will learn the amount of people who know who God is will increase during the time of great Jacob's trouble, during the great tribulation, because God will pour out his wrath upon all nations. And there will be no question who is doing this, these miracles and these judgments. It is God. And the people who know God will be increased during this time. But there's one other warning at this time in the very last tribe, very last name of the, that are given to us here in the story, the tribe of Naphtali. The leader was named Ahira, which means my brother is evil, and he was the son of Enan, and it says having eyes is what that means. And so there will be someone who is evil there at that time, and it's what is he going to be seen? What are, what are we going to be seen at this time? And that is where our story ends in the telling of these names. Is that we've told almost this history and the story of the creation of God through Abraham, through Yeshua, through the time of the kings, then through the time of Yeshua, the bringing of the Holy Spirit, and a warning into the future of a time called Jacob's trouble, a tribulation, a wilderness of sorts that we will have to face. And here we have this at the beginning of the book called In the Wilderness. Now the rest of the story continues.
That it, it, it's another fascinating parallel of a story that tells us why we're studying this book. Is because there will be a time later in the future, a time called Jacob's Trouble, that we will need to know the experiences of the children of Israel in the wilderness, that we will need to know that information as well. And that is where the story and the meanings of these names of these captains, that's where it leads off. Now, that kind of leads off with a little bit of a to-be-continued kind of vibe to it. Obviously, it would be great if these names said, you know, like, like, my God is victory would be great if that was the name, meaning of one of these names. We know the end of the story. We know that God is going to be victorious when it's all said and done. What we need to continue to do in our own hearts and in our own lives, digging into the word and trying to find what is he trying to say to us? What is God trying to teach us? It's so easy to get caught up in, in the words and the names and, and all of these things. It, it seems, if you read it word for word here, it seems very redundant. It's a lot of numbers. It's a lot of names. These names that I just listed in uh, Numbers chapter 1 are repeated again several times in Scripture, also in Numbers chapter 2. They're recounted again in the Chronicles. And so, like, we could get caught up in all the, all the things and the, and the words and the instruction here of, as we go through the Scripture and go through the Torah cycle. But what we always need to remember is who our God is, who do we follow, and that even though trials and tribulations and tests and wildernesses come in front of us, um, we need to continue to follow God and his teaching, his instruction. We need to learn from the mistakes of our past because there is another wilderness coming. We can't ever sit here and say, well, it's a good thing the children of Israel, they went through that terrible wilderness. It's a good thing I don't have to go through that thing. No, the Lord, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And believe you me, God will bring you a wilderness at times and will bring you adversity. And you need to know who you are in those times. And we need, and God needs to know if you're going to still trust in him through those times as well. Let that be a lesson to us. Let that be a theme as we go through the Torah cycle this year. Um, there's many more things I could draw out of the Torah portion here, but my time has run out. Um, once again, as always, I encourage everyone, read the Torah portion each and every week. Read it before this message or afterwards if you wish. And there's always so many more things to learn in the Torah cycle with my short time for this year. That will be my message for Bar. The first portion in the book of Numbers. So with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word once again, where we can find amazing things, Lord, that your word, I pray your word become alive and powerful to us each and every time that we read it, each and every year that we study each Torah portion, each Torah cycle. Father, I pray that you would um, just continue to teach us, Lord, strengthen us in our most holy faith. For, Father, all of us face some form of adversity, Father. Some of us always, um, the, the situations we find ourselves in, Lord, sometimes all we can do is but to, to pray to you and ask for your Holy Spirit to be our guide. For if our own spirits, Lord, spirits of fear and anger, if that causes us to lash out to one another, to lash out at even you, the, our Lord, our God, who brought us into this place, Father, may we never fall short in that way. May we never lash out in spirits of fear and anger, but may we always operate, Lord, with your Holy Spirit leading and guiding us through every trial, tribulation, and scenario we face. May we always look to you for our protection, our guide, Lord. May we dig into your word, Father, that we be strengthened by the words that we find there. And may, may they be new and alive and powerful each and every time. We love you, bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day. 
We thank you for everything you're doing in our lives. And we give you all the honor and glory and praise in this place. It's in your son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chai alam natah betokeinu Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-Torah ha-Amen Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the sun has set on a Friday night bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying Shabbat Shalom, everybody sing Shalom 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 God has put a smile upon your face. He's got the whole world in his hands. Obey his commands and you will know peace. Shalom. 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 